tell you what, if you've been thinking about working with kids at all, this is an excellent time to do that. At the beginning of this, this coming year, Melinda and Deli have really scored an amazing curriculum that mirrors our values of connection and is beautiful, fantastic. What's going on downstairs today is really amazing, wonderful, right in line with what we value. And if you've been thinking about that at all, uh, participating, connecting with kids in some way, you can connect with either one of them. Beginning of this year will be an excellent time to do that. Melinda said it, 21 days of prayer and fasting. I, I hope you can be a part of that. Again, we can set you up with an app on your phone uh, and, and you, can, you can do that anywhere, anywhere that you are during those 21 days. The 7 o'clock hour, we do that because it's streamed from Birmingham, Alabama, and it's 6 a.m. there. So uh, benefits of being in the eastern time zone, right? We get an hour extra. And we get to stream that. So folks are watching it on their way to work. Uh, people will watch it on their way here. They don't make it right at 7 o'clock, and they'll roll in at 7.15, and they've already caught the worship. And there's a, a word that's always given, and we have a half hour where we just pray together and then some focus stuff. So that'll be happening. Really, really, really encourage you to be a part of that. I heard a quote this week from uh, Billy Graham, and they said, what do you think is, of course, this wasn't the word they used, the secret sauce, but that's what I'll say. What do you think is the secret sauce of, of the impact of your meetings and, and the revival and, and uh, uh, people being converted and all that? He said three words, prayer, prayer, and prayer. Yeah. And so really, this isn't a club. This is spiritual. And what we do in this room is spiritual. And that's what makes everything different about what we're trying to do, is it's spiritual. And frankly, I ask myself the same thing. How do I have any expectation of sustained change? If I'm not praying, and if we're not praying, and we're not touching God for ourselves and for others. And so this is such an exciting time. I'm actually really looking forward to those three weeks. And then the small group stuff that's going to be happening in February. We're actually piloting that. Uh, three couples, Melinda and I and two other couples, are actually piloting some curriculum that we've been uh, reading through and working through just to see how that goes. And, and that's going to launch in February. So really exciting stuff for you to be a part of. We've been working through a series during Advent, and we call it Clear the Stage. Clear the Stage, and the idea of that is all of these things, it's busy up here. We try to make it clean. We try to put the wires away. Like, we try to make it very, very clean up here, not messy. But it's just, there's stuff. And in our life, isn't that true? There's just stuff. How many of you find that Christmas can have both things? Christmas can have more messy than any other part of the year, more busy than any other time of the year, more demands and this and that. And do I even have to say shopping for gifts? Like, wow. And it's also got the ability to help us focus on what we say is, you know, the way we say it, the reason for the season, right? We get to actually focus. So both of those things are happening. And listen, it's not just Christmas. That happens all year long. It's the draw and the pull of everything else that's busy in Jesus. It's one of the reasons 21 days will be so fantastic. Because we are intentionally saying Jesus. We are intentionally providing a space first thing. Not first thing so we can do it and get on with the rest of our day. But first thing so it spills out into the rest of our day. So when we talk about clearing the stage this month of December, we're talking about taking all the other things that might vie for the best. I could get a heated argument going with some folks in here. Greatest basketball player of all time. People have already started beefing up. They've already like started, like, it's, you know. All I got to do is say, Steph, and somebody else yells, LeBron, someone else is like, Michael Jordan, you know, like, and then, and then people start splitting out, and stuff starts breaking, and chairs fly, like, like right? When Brian Stewart's in the mix, yes, <laughs> amen. <laughs> ah. <laughs> yeah. People have some write-ins, even, yeah. 
Hey, listen, when it comes to the greatest of all time, there's only one. There's only one. Only one that can change our life. Only one that can touch us. And in a moment, we're different. Touches us, and in a moment, we're changed. And all the things that we do here are trying to provide space for that moment. That moment. And so we're talking about clearing the stage, and we're doing it in the context of Advent. Advent has four weeks. You might see four candles, usually one lit first week, two, three, four. We think of hope and peace and joy and love. Those are the four. Those four characteristics of Jesus coming. Advent means we're looking for him to show up. We're looking for him to be here. And so we're expecting and we have anticipation about hope that he brings and peace that he brings and the joy that he brings and love. And as we celebrate the greatest of all time this week, this Sunday, we're going to look through the lens of love. Now, some languages have have many words for love. The Greek language, for example, agape is a selfless love. A filio, that word, is a, a brotherly kind of friendship love. Eros, that's a sexual love. Storge is a, is a familial type of love. And then there's the word xenia, which is like love like hospitality. So some languages have different words for love that specify different things. Now, in English, it's just love. <laughs> I love my dog. I love pizza, I love the ravens, I love my mama. All means the same thing, but it doesn't mean the same thing. It's just the same word. So in English, that word doesn't distinguish the meaning, and we actually have to explain it. So this week, when we talk about love, I want to explain it in particular. This week, the Holy Spirit's directed me to consider the meaning of compassion. Love as Compassion. My working definition of compassion is this, to suffer with. See, it's more than just a sympathy. There's an empathizing to it. Like empathy is in the house. You you get it. I was 17 years old when my dad passed, and it was a sudden heart attack, and it was instantaneous. I was 17. 15 years later, I was a youth pastor in Annapolis, Maryland. One of our youth group parents died suddenly of a heart attack two days after Christmas. Everybody else was out of town or vacationing, and Melinda and I were the staff pastors that were on site over the Christmas holiday. And December 27th, my phone went off, and this dad had died, fell right out of the bed, heart attack, dead before he hit the floor. And we were headed to the house. The only son in that family, there were four children in our youth group, and the only son in that family was 17. Very few times in my life can I truly say, I know what you're going through. When I walked into that family's house that two days after Christmas, it was one of those times. As much as ever, any other time in my life, I was able to look at someone, and I looked at Paul Trader. And I was able to give him compassion. I walked in a door and turned a corner. He came to me. I came to him. I embraced him. Pardon me, but the quote was, this sucks, Brother Smith. To which I said, it gets worse, buddy. As I held him. And then it gets better. And then it gets worse. And then it gets better. But we're here, pal. That's compassion. As much as any other time, I had been in a space with age and circumstance and dad and the way he passed and the whole thing, the suddenness of it all. Compassion means to suffer with. You have walked a mile in those moccasins. 
I think of the studies of biology and physiology, and I, I think about that, and I think of how far uh, we've come and how much we didn't understand, and some of the oddities through the years, and some of the moments that when it came to biology, or it came to physiology, or it came to medicine, we, didn't just, we just didn't understand it all. We didn't, we didn't get it right. To be hysterical is to be anxious and, and frenzied and out of control. You're hysterical, right? You're out of control. Hysteria sounds like hysterectomy. <laughs> They're both from the same Greek word, hystera. Hystera. And it was actually well into the 1800s, well into the 1800s, that people thought hysteria was considered physiologically a female issue because the word hystera is the Greek word for uterus. That's, that's, not, that's a miss. We didn't quite understand everything. We liken hysteria with being completely female. Until the late 1800s. I've been reading about Abraham Lincoln, and the book is Abraham Lincoln and His Melancholy. It's about Abraham Lincoln and his depression. And during his pre-presidential years, when his love life was a bit of a mess, he was given to depression, fell to depression, suicidal ideation on numerous accounts. He was treated by bloodletting. They literally, Lincoln disappeared for several weeks and they put leeches on him. They gave him crystallized pepper and ice baths. Surely that will work for depression. Sounds like I'd be depressed. I think of the ways that we just didn't quite understand. Men and women suffering from seizures, they weren't taken to the hospital, they were taken to the house of God. Men and women suffering from seizures weren't taken to a physician, they were taken to a priest because that was predominantly seen as possession. For centuries, someone that had the physiology of a seizure, there was an exorcism that they tried to perform on that person. In fact, the word seizure is from the Latin word sacere, and it means to take possession of. So literally today, even though we understand so much more about it, we still use the word a seizure, meaning someone was taken possession of. That's how, that's how transcendent these things are. I think in the era of the Civil War, the amputation of a limb with a contaminated saw was as deadly as the bullet itself. We just didn't understand. We just don't, we don't always understand. And as we gain greater understanding of our bodies and our world, we gain greater clarity into the landscape of our our lives. As we gain greater understanding of the interactions and the dynamics of our world and our own bodies, we gain greater understanding about the landscape of our very own lives. The Stanford biologist Robert Sapolsky is one of my favorite authors. He recently wrote a book called Behave. He made it mainstream. He talks about what goes into influencing a decision. If I make a decision, right now I make a decision. One second ago, that decision was influenced by neurotransmitters in my body, neurochemicals, so uh, serotonin and, and, and dopamine and oxytocin. Serotonin, uh, I believe, affects mood regulation, and, and, and mood regulation affects depression, and depression affects resilience, and here we go. One second ago. My decision right now can be affected from one hour ago what I did. Did I sleep? What's my blood sugar level? One week ago, based on my hormones, 
When Melinda and I first got married, we made a pinky promise. There would be one week every month that she said, we shall not make any major decisions. <laughs> Hormones. The events of our life, our life, the events of our life, and, and the life of others can directly affect us. We know about loss and we know about trauma. We think about that. Have you thought about scarcity? Have you thought about how scarcity affects our psyche? Uncertainty, how uncertainty can shape us. When you throw our genetics in there, <laughs> that is a soup, man, to sort through. 90% of our rule books, the rule book that you have, that I have, 90% of it, was written by the time you were six years old. And it starts in utero. It starts in the womb. And this is where I want to pick up the story of Jesus. The greatest of all time knew something about rejection. And it started when he was being carried in the womb of a teenage mother. Think with, with me of the, the rejections he had to encounter. That had to be a challenging pregnancy. They might not have known that then, but we know that today, that scarcity, anxiety, loss, trauma, while carrying a child affects the neurology of that child. Mary saw an angel. It's pretty amazing. Her parents didn't. I think some of that stuff's lost on us. Mary ran into the kitchen and was like, I just saw an angel. I'm pregnant by the Holy Ghost. Everyone's like, woo, let's go tell the priest. Yay, we'll have a party this weekend. Pretty not. Pretty sure that didn't happen. Mary saw an angel. No one else did. No one in town is buying it. She was a woman of faith. We know that the scripture says so, but it's still hard. It still had to be difficult. It still had to be challenging. This teenage mom with such tremendous uncertainty. We know in the story that Mary goes to Elizabeth. Luke chapter 1, verse 56 it says, Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months, and then she returned home. We know that Mary went to see Elizabeth, and Elizabeth was pregnant. And when Mary knocked on the door, the child inside of Elizabeth, which was John the Baptist, that child leaped inside of her. The Bible tells us she was six months pregnant when Mary knocks on the door. Mary wasn't just running across town after church on Sunday to say, hey, let me tell you what's up. She was there for three months. I know of stories where pregnant teenage women go other places during their pregnancy because it's awkward. And it wasn't across town. This wasn't an easy trip for Mary. In fact, Elizabeth and her husband lived in the hills of Judea. The town is called Hebron. It's a little bit south of Jerusalem. Nazareth, if that is in fact where Mary was from, and that's what scholars would say, is 83 miles away. This wasn't a convenient trip. This was a trip with purpose. And it was a trip where I'm going to stay a while. I wonder if that teenage mom had to sort some things out. I wonder if she needed some help. I wonder what, how she slept. I wonder what she was thinking. The stresses, the anxiety, the unknowns. You see, Joseph hadn't made his decision yet. This was all very much up in the air. She goes 80 <laughs> 
three miles. That's like walking to French Lick and then going about 10 miles further. That's walking to Lafayette. That's let's head east on 70. We'll hit the Beltway and go to Noblesville. 83-mile teenage girl. I try to put myself in that spot, and I try to understand. She wasn't showing. doesn't seem so in the biblical narrative. It seems that the angel came to her, and she immediately goes to Elizabeth. But I think I can understand her anxiety. Matthew chapter 1, verse 24, tells us that Joseph had a dream, and he takes Mary as his wife. It says, when Joseph woke up from this dream... He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. He didn't know what to do. This isn't an easy decision. He's engaged. She's pregnant. He's not the father. What in the world? That's not a sit down, drink coffee, figure it out in 20 minutes. There's struggle. And with struggle comes anxiety and uncertainty. Brings pressure. (laughs) Will we be accepted? Will we be rejected? And the baby is in there feeling all those things. Born in rejection. Some of you are familiar with Trevor Noah. He's a comedian, author, talk show host. Trevor Noah might understand. His dad was a white man, his mother a black woman, but he was born in South Africa. And his biography is titled, Born a Crime. I wonder if Jesus would have one titled, Born a Sin. Because as far as everybody else was concerned, That story was weak. And as they navigate trying to follow God, and let me just toss this out here for you. When you follow God in a miraculous and dynamic way, you're going to need some angel visitations. Mary needed one. Joseph needed one. We're going to talk in a moment about them even transitioning and an angel telling them, God's word was very profound in all of this. But when you get a word from God, the joke, the tongue-in-cheek joke that I give people, when they're like, man, I got a word from God, I say to them, I am glad I am not you. To which they're like, what do you, what do you mean? I said, because when God gives you a word, he gives you a word because you're going to need it. If circumstances just flow right together, then you don't need a word from God. Think about the times God's spoken to you. Think about the times God's prompted something in you. You got a word from God, whether it be from a song, the scripture, preaching, the Lord speaking to you in prayer. You got a word from God because you were going to need it. You were going to walk a path that was rough and bumpy and twisty and uncertain and not accepted nor celebrated. And there were going to be moments that you were questioning, and you had to reach back on something and have something to hold to, something to anchor to. Many of us are familiar with the story of the no room in the inn. How cool was that? Not very. She's about to give birth. It didn't go on for years. But can you see them maneuvering, working through rejection after rejection after rejection? Rejection after rejection after rejection. And now what? And no? Oh, no. That, no. Come to get, no. What about the, nothing, not provided for. And then once Jesus is born, they move away from their family. Some of us have done that. We moved away. Job took us somewhere. Life situations moved us somewhere. We were away from family. And some here, it's your story, that you were away from family while it was just the two of you. And then once the cutie patootie showed up, 
you felt God calling you to get back to mama. Right? I don't want to go. I've heard countless stories of, yeah, we're doing this, but we're expecting we're going to move back. We're going to get back by mama. I don't want to do this pregnancy by myself. To which, if I were the husband, I'd be like, you didn't do this by yourself. <laughs> like, here, here we are. Right? But do you feel the intensity of family? And the grounding of family? And the safety of family? So we've got the Koresh, and we've got uh, the Jesus and Joseph and the donkeys and the angels and the shepherds and the wise men. Oh, we got all that stuff. Did you realize that when the wise men came, it wasn't baby Jesus? Very likely he was a toddler, possibly up to two years old, based on what Herod said. Herod was killing every baby under two. Maybe it was one or six months, and he just wanted to be sure. But the Bible tells us that he studied carefully to find the age of the child and then sent out a decree that every child, two and under, the boys would be killed. Matthew chapter 2 tells us that the wise men went to the house. The wise men went to the house. They weren't at the manger, I don't think. I don't think so. I'm not just trying to be controversial. I just don't think they were there. The star shone when he was born... And then they followed it, and it took them to the house. And when they saw the child with his mother Mary, they bowed, they worshipped him, they opened their treasures, they gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I like to think Jesus was a toddler and grabbing myrrh and wiping it on his face and trying to eat a gold coin. Like, that's what he would be doing. But see, the wise men came, and Herod says, come back to me. And they they were told by an angel in a dream. Keep going. So essentially they they tricked him. And that made him so angry. And based on their time of arrival and all of that, that's when he makes the decree to kill the babies. And an angel tells Mary and Joseph, take your family and go into Egypt. That's not home. That's displaced. Many of us in the, in the storyline right now that's happening in the Middle East, we have a better understanding of what it means to be displaced as a people group. That you were here, but now you have to be here or here or that place. And some scholars say it could have been only a few months. Others say up to two years. The family living somewhere else, not so friendly, not so welcoming, not supported, <laughs> You see, our Christ, our Messiah, from conception to the cross, couldn't find a place to live. That dude moved all the time. He couldn't find a place. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus tells everybody this. He says, foxes have dens and birds have nests. But I don't even have a place to lay my head. You see, that wasn't just an in utero story. That wasn't just toddler Jesus' story. That was a story of his entire life. If you have a Bible, and it's an NIV, and it's a paper Bible, you could open it up to Luke chapter 4. If you don't, you could open your phone. And you could go to your YouVersion app, and you can look up, hit Bible, and hit read, and find Luke, and hit Luke, Go to chapter 4, particularly the NIV. That's the, one I, that's the one I was reading. And scroll down. In Luke chapter 4, verse 14, it's not the verse that I'm wanting you to read. It's the heading. The heading when you look at Luke chapter 4, NIV. Do you have it there? What's it say? The heading of Luke chapter 4, the beginning of his ministry is Jesus rejected at Nazareth. In Luke chapter 3, Jesus fights with Satan and defeats him through the word of God, and it is a powerful moment. And when you read this verse, 14, it says, he came back out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. And you know what it got him? Rejected. came to his hometown, 
went to the temple to read, pulled from Isaiah and read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach and, and heal and deliver. Recovery of sight to the blind, deliverance to the captive. And he says all of this out of Isaiah. And then he lays it down and he says, today, this word is fulfilled in your hearing. And you know what he got for that? They charged him. He didn't get a stoning. They charged him in the mass, pushed him out. They were going to take him to a cliff. Read it. <laughs> they were trying to throw him over a cliff. That does not sound like happy to have you here. I announce my candidacy. <laughs> they throw me over a cliff. And it says he just slipped away. I don't think Jesus was in great danger, but I do think he got rejected. John 1.11 offers this biographical sketch. He came to his own. And his own didn't receive him. These snapshots capture this mosaic of rejection. That's Jesus' story. You want to know what his story is? Jesus' history is a story of rejection. From almost the moment of conception by the Holy Spirit. And we can read that story. And we know we're like 30,000 feet. We're like untouched. We can just read it. And it's so sterile. But time after time after time came into his own. His own received him not. Didn't even have a place to lay his head. We opened the last two Sundays with Ephesians chapter 1, 21 to 23. In the whole idea of clear the stage, right, the greatest of all time, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. Fullness of him who fills everything in every way. He is fantastic. He is the head over all things. He is the greatest of all time. And he intimately has compassion for rejection. It doesn't lessen who he is. It, it doesn't lessen who he is. It doesn't lessen his power. It doesn't lessen his greatness. In Luke chapter 4, it says he showed up in the power of the Spirit. He was victorious. He didn't bump one. He didn't miss one. It wasn't the four temptations because he lost one. Like, he was spotless, clean, sinless, loving, and rejected. So instead of opening up with Ephesians 1, I, I, I want to read, instead of about his holiness, let's read about his humanity. Hebrews chapter 2. If you're going to pay attention to something, now would be the time. Surely it's not the angels he helps. Come on, somebody needs to hear this. Somebody needs to hear this. Hey, surely it's not the angels he helps, <laughs> but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, what reason? For the helping to Abraham's descendants. Not angels, but people. There are a few people in here that are Jewish. But that's not the Abraham descendant we're talking about. Because there was a promise given to Abraham that every family on earth would be blessed. That through his seed, all families would be blessed. The fulfillment of the promise wasn't his son Isaac. The fulfillment of the promise was that every family would be blessed on earth. How do I know that? Because in Hebrews, it says Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and on and on and on. And it says all these died not having received the promise. Did Abraham get to meet Isaac? He met Isaac. It's his boy. But that wasn't the promise. 
Scripture tells us that he saw Isaac, but he died not having received the promise because the promise was about you. The promise was about your kids and all who are afar off. Would you throw that back up there, please? For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way. I have done my best to exegete from the Scripture the facts that Jesus Christ, our Messiah, was well familiar with rejection in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. Because, because he felt rejection from the minute one. At the cross, the guy is like, saved others, save, can you save yourself? Why don't you save us, hoss? At the cross, he's being mocked about who he is. Because he suffered when he was tempted, he's able to, to what? Help. I need help. What kind of help do you need? I believe people need four things. Every single human being. A, B, C, D. Acceptance belonging, community, and to make a difference. Acceptance is the opposite of rejection. He knows our need for acceptance. He understands the need that we have for acceptance. And he understands what it's like to not get it. And because of that, what did that say? Because of that, he's able to help you. There is a compassion in him that is able to help those who are tempted. Jesus had this innate affinity for the rejected. This affinity for people rejected. Even children. Children were brought up to him and they were like, no, 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 you don't come over. And what did he say? No, 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 let the kids come up. The kids were going to be rejected. They weren't going to be able to be around him. He's like, no, 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 no. Bring them. Allow the children to come to me and don't forbid them. The woman with the bleeding that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that woman was unclean. And for her to touch someone made them unclean, but he did not revile her. He welcomed her as a daughter. He says, daughter, your faith has made you whole. She was so ostracized and so sidelined and so marginalized. And when she came to him, he received her. The man with palsy that couldn't get into the house. He was dropped down through the roof into the middle of the room. And Jesus not only healed his body, but he forgave his sin. And he stopped the moment to accept the rejected. I think of the crippled man by the pool of Bethesda. Literally kept on the margins. Literally on the margins. Not allowed to access. Not allowed to get in the pool. He says, I'd love to get in the pool, but there's no one to help me. No one is even here to help me. Let me point something out about Jesus in this story. Many times as you read the Gospels, many times, Jesus is walking along and someone hollers at him. And then he turns. That's why our prayer matters. Our prayer matters because we're walking along, he's walking along, and all of a sudden we can call him into our space. This isn't that story. This man was on the sideline, could not get, how long was he there? 38 years. 30 38 years he laid by that pool. And this is a story where Jesus wasn't called. Jesus found him. Jesus went to him. 
That dude is laying on the side, unable to get to the pool. And Jesus walks in, and he navigates the space, and he finds him. He's got his eyes on him, Mello. And he finds him, and he walks over, and he gets right down next to him. And he asks this. He says, you want to be healed? (laughs) Oh, my God. You want to be healed, bud? And the man, in all that he knows, who's going to help me? Is that an attitude of rejected? That's an attitude of hopeless. That's an attitude of I've been rejected so long. Who is going to help me? He's like, that's not what I ask you, pal. (laughs) Do you want to be healed? Jesus found that guy. And when everyone was flipping out over the healing because it happened on a Sabbath, you know who else Jesus healed that day? Nobody. He left and walked out. He walked in and found the one guy rejected and gave him a healing. And then he walked out. (laughs) Do you think that he doesn't know you? Do you think that he doesn't know exactly where you are and exactly your story? The iconic story of the woman at the well. She comes in the middle of the day because she's so rejected by everyone else. The shame is too much to come in the morning. She comes in the middle of the day and Jesus intentionally shows up to sit there and waits on her. And she comes forward because he always has room for the rejected. He has room for the marginalized. He shows up and she walks up. And he starts telling her all these promises. And she's like, not me. And I don't even know why you're talking to me. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. I get the rules of all this. You're not supposed to even be talking to me. (laughs) He gives her the promise of indwelling water. And I think that's the first person he ever told that to. That's what he thinks of the rejected. That's what he thinks of the marginalized. She says, I'm rejected by others. And he says, but not by the Messiah. And for anyone doubting the compassion of our Christ, in Matthew chapter 8, Mark chapter 1, and Luke chapter 5, three times in the Gospels, a man with leprosy. Does anyone know what a leper was required to do? What they were required to holler? Yeah, why don't we just say, rejected. (laughs) Reject me. Reject me. Unclean. I'm going to remind you and everyone else, unclean, unclean, unclean. Someone's coming up and like, unclean. You You don't want to get near me. And in those three passages... You know what Jesus did? He said, I know if if you're willing, you can heal me. And do you know what Jesus did to the rejected? Oh, yeah, he healed him, of course. But you know what he did? He touched him. I wonder when the last time that leper got touched. How many years, and we don't know, none of us know. How many years had it been? How many years has it been? That was a question for you. How many years? How many years has it been? (laughs) Since there was a loving touch on your shoulder from someone that wants nothing from you, just you. Just the best for you. Just cares about you. You see, Jesus could have spoken. Worlds were spoken into existence by the word of God. I don't think he had to touch the person, but he did. Because he understands that touch that we need. Over the past several years, The Chosen has been quite a series, you know. Have you seen seen the episode in The Chosen? 
There's a dark-skinned woman off to the side behind a bush, and, and the disciples are there, and Mary, and, and Jesus is chatting with them, and this person starts walking up, and they're all like, ah, and the, the one guy pulls his knife. He's like, stay back, and one covers his face. and goes, don't breathe his air, and, and the man walks up, and he just drops to his knees. He says, if you're willing, I know you can. And Jesus starts walking, and the disciples say, don't do it, master. He just looks, and he's like, it's fine. And he walks up, and they have this beautiful interaction. And the man is healed. You know the title of that episode? Indescribable Compassion. They must have known what I was preaching. Compassion that's indescribable. I've been doing this long enough that it doesn't matter to me what you look like. It really doesn't matter how put together you seem. It doesn't matter what you promote or put out, how you want us to see you. So many of us, come on up, Arnie. So many of us have moments. We just didn't make a cut. We were excluded. We were rejected. There were choices to be made, and someone chose this person instead of me. And that could be all the way back to birth. And those are hard. I want you to know that while a babe in a manger Jesus Christ was experiencing rejection. He was experiencing situations that would give him compassion. It wasn't going to take him out. He had this love of the Father. But do you know this? When Jesus was baptized, do you know what the Father chose to say? This is my loved Son, now, some of us are going to quote, in whom I am well pleased, but let me, let me translate it for you. This is my loved son. I'm proud of him. I'm proud of him. I hope that's not lost on you. The importance and the necessity of even Jesus the Christ... <laughs> To hear from the Father, man, I am proud of you. I am proud of you. If you're in here and you might be thinking, oh, Jesus didn't need that, then I'm going to ask you how he was tempted in all points like as we. So if I'm just trying to pull something cute and throw something out for a dandy message in December, and my question to you will be, how then was he tempted like you? How then did he suffer all things like we do? But he did. And because of that, I want us to look at Hebrews 4 as we close it out today. Hebrews 4.14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Clear the stage, right? He's the greatest of all time. Jesus, the Son of God. Because of that, let's hold fast our confession. Verse 15. Here's the message for you. Here's the, here's the invitation to come. I'm going to give you an invitation to pray in a minute. Arnett's going to sing. Jade's going to sing. Looks like others are going to sing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's the recommendation. Here's the call. You ready? You see, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have a high priest that doesn't get us, but was in all points tempted, just like we. 
without sin. So verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain a mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you know where you need to be today? Right where you are. But I hope you're here because it's a time of need. I hope that's the time you actually make sure you come to church. The most messed up. (laughs) The most discouraged. The most confused. The most broken. Those moments where, man, Jesus is not supposed to be talking to me right now. Except that's the exact reason that he went through all the things. Because his love isn't just love like I love pizza. His love is a compassion for you, for you, for me. And you know what? I want to step into that. So that's my invitation to you today. In the next few minutes, as we close out this morning, and next Sunday it's going to be a beautiful Christmas service. We'll have candlelight and we're going to sing carols. We're going to hear readings from the scriptures, from, all, from, from the authors of the New Testament. We're going to hear readings. But the message that I want you to get most is that Jesus loves you and he gets it. And he gets you. So as they sing, I invite you to pray. I invite you to be a a, a receiver of his love. Right? When all those people thought, I I shouldn't go. I can't go. I can't be in there. It's off limits. I can't do this. I'm restricted. I want you, however you have to envision it, you're there yelling, unclean, unclean, unclean. And you ready for this? You are. I am. (laughs) That's true. That's true. And I want you to envision he just keeps walking closer and closer and closer until all of a sudden you're saying unclean and your face is next to his face because he's hugging you and touching you. Father, in this moment, help us move into this space of prayerfulness and acceptance and celebration of you, the greatest of all time, and the aspect of love that is compassion. God, give us a revelation of how much you love us and how willing you are and you know. And thank you for suffering through those things. Thank you for dealing with the rejections and no place to lay your head. And time and time and time again, people pushing you away, but we're not pushing you away today. We're celebrating you today. We welcome you in this place. And as you invite us to come to you and connect with you, Blessed Jesus, in your name, blessed Jesus.